Well, I come to the history of Europe as an outsider, which I sometimes think is a good thing to be, because I don't have any access to Brian. I don't have to defend my country, my people. I don't have to attack my country or my people. I see Europe from across the Atlantic Ocean. And when you see it from further away, I think, you're more aware of the commonalities than the differences. If you ask Canadians, and this has been true for as long as I can remember, if you ask Canadians what are their summer plans, and they sometimes say, I'm going to Europe, I'll start in Dublin, then I'll go to London, then I might stop in Paris, and then I'm hoping to get as far east as possibly Budapest, sometimes more ambitiously they might go to St. Petersburg. But for people, the further away you are, I think the more you tend to see Europe as something that has a sort of cohesion. The problems, of course, start when you try and write its history. And one of the great problems that seems to I just want to raise some of these problems and, and suggest areas where we may want to continue to explore Europe's history. One of the problems, of course, is, is just simple geography. Um, where does Europe start and end? It is not a continent. It is part of the great Eurasian landmass. And it, of course, is bounded by seas on three sides. But where does Europe stop in the east? And this has always been a difficult question, I think remains a very difficult question. I was in Tallinn a few years ago doing something for the BBC, which was exploring some of these questions, and we asked a local historian, where does Europe end? And he said, at the Russian border. And he was very clear that not, nothing on the other side of the Russian border counted, in his view, as Europe. Of course, others would say Europe ends at the Urals. Or maybe Europe doesn't end anywhere in the East, it just simply attenuates and other cultures begin to come in. It's, it, it is, I think, a very important question. And when you're looking at geography, I think we also have to remember that over time, our views of what Europe is have shifted. I mean, for the Greeks and the Romans, Europe was very much at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, and the term was used to distinguish what they saw as Europe, which was actually a very small part of what Europe is today, from Asia and from Africa, which they saw as being somehow different and inhabited by different sorts of people. And over time, of course, the center of Europe has, has moved. It's shifted westwards and northwards. But again, these are questions. Where, where does Europe start? When does the idea of Europe start? And, and what does it encompass? And I think tied to that, again, the question of geography, is, is water a barrier or a highway? We tend to see natural features like great rivers and, of course, the English Channel as being things that divide Europe up. But, of course, with so much of history, waterways were much safer, much more convenient, much more economical ways of traveling. And so, although people who have advocated leave have tended to see the Channel as something that marks out the distinctness of the British Isles from the continent of Europe, I would argue that for much of Europe's history and the history of the British Isles, the English Channel has been a highway which has been easily trans transversed and has carried ideas, has carried goods, and has carried peoples back and forth. If it's not geography, and, and geography I think is problematic, then is it in some sense cultural? Is what we think of Europe today in some way inherited in the classical world? Inheritors of the Greek civilization and then the Roman civilization which succeeded it. And again, it's difficult because, as, as I said, that was very much a Mediterranean-based civilization, very much at the eastern end or southern side, uh, northern side of the Mediterranean. Is Europe a civilizational idea? And if so, which civilization? There are those who will say that Europe is a Christian civilization, and today these terms are very problematic because usually they mean something very specific by it. But I think it's probably fair to say that you can see 
the enormous cultural influence, if not the religious influence of Christianity in Europe. It's affected culture, it's affected architecture, it's affected ways in which we think. But it has also, of course, provided an internal dividing line right down through the heart of Europe between Catholicism and Orthodoxy, and then later on between varieties of Protestantism and Catholicism. And we cannot look just at the Christian heritage of Europe, however we define it and however we see it, because we also have to take into account the enormous contributions made by pagans, by Muslims, and by Jews over many centuries. So if it's not a civilizational thing, is it a set of shared values? And then, of course, we get into the question of which shared values. And if you look through European history, you can find many values of many different sorts. Some of them we might admire, some of them we would certainly deplore. Is it an economic unity? And I think certainly the economic ties have been there for a very long time. And we tend always, I think, to assume that what we're doing in the present is more efficient and more far-reaching and, and more effective than anyone in the past. But if you look at the links of trade and the movement of goods that, for example, founded or brought together Europe in the Roman Empire, if you look in the Middle Ages, which we tend, I think, too often to think of as the Dark Ages, there was still an enormous amount of trade going on. And there were also ideas being moved around. Uh, ideas being, being moved around, even if before a time when we think that they should have easily moved around. Um, if you go, as I went fairly recently, to Estragon on the Danube, in the, just in the north of Hungary, it's the most extraordinary place. And there you can see Romanesque buildings, Renaissance buildings, Baroque buildings. I mean, these were styles and ideas that moved across Europe, often through very, very great distance. I think, finally, as we consider what is Europe, I think an interesting question, and, and I'd like to hear what Rana thinks about it, is why have the periods of unity in Europe been so much less than the periods in China? And I think it is something we think about. So what our challenges are to try and find consistent threads through this complicated story without being a historical, without reading the present back into the past, as has happened, has happened, is happening, and happened very much in the 19th century. We have to look at what Europe we want to think about? Do we look at Europe, the dark continent, or Europe, which is in some ways being a model for the world? How do we deal with the difference between nationalism, regionalism, localism, and pan-Europeanism? And as, as Andy Harrell said, I think rightly, these are not mutually exclusive. So it seems to me another question we might want to consider is, how much do we look at elite Europe, and how much do we go down into society and consider those stories, and how do we consider how they interact? So it seems to me there's three, and I'm just throwing these out because um, I have my yellow card. Um, areas where the meaning of Europe and its history can be explored. One is in the growth of the centralized state and interstate relations, and this is something that Europe has contributed a lot to. And the growth of international law, international norms, practices, and expectations. A second thing, and very closely allied to the growth of the powerful centralized state, is war. How much of a role has war played in European history? This is something I think we need to consider. I don't agree with Victor Davis Hanson, who says there's a Western way of war. I think this is, I find his arguments unconvincing. But war has, I think, played an enormous part in the development of Europe, in its adaptation of technologies, in its organizational structure, which leads me to the third point I think we should look at, and that is Europe and the world. I think to consider Europe without looking at the ways in which Europe has gone out to the world, but the ways in which the world has come in to Europe, I think, is, is to miss a very important part. And this again goes back, I mean, it goes back into the invasions of, of the peoples coming from the east, the, 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 the riders from the steppes, peoples coming from the Middle East and, and North Africa. And so I think that relationship between Europe and the rest of the world, it, it has always been there, perhaps became more important in the early modern period. 
And so I think what we need to do as we look at the history of Europe is not try and create narratives. I think we've seen what happens when historians create narratives. We do not have a glorious record in this. We've created in the past some very dangerous narratives which tell of victimization or triumph. And I think we need to be aware of that. I think what our role should be is to see Europe as it always has been, as a work in progress, as something that is difficult to define, and we should contribute to that discussion. We need to integrate the different sorts of histories that can be written about Europe. But I think what we need to do above all is keep open the idea that there are many different narratives in European history, and one does not supersede all others. Thank you very much. I completely agree with uh, the idea that historians um, need not necessarily create uh, narratives. Uh, one of our main tasks, I would say, is even to deconstruct uh, existing uh, narratives which have, which have been constructed uh, by different um, intellectual communities. Uh, so what I would like to do is not to present a narrative, uh, but I want uh, to present three key elements uh, which seem to me very important when we discuss uh, our subject Europe uh, in the 20th and early 21st centuries. Well, first of all, um, I'm going to speak on uh, the problem of European nations. Second, the question of a patron coming from without. And thirdly, of the theory of path dependency. First, uh, there is no writing of any hist history of Europe which the na with the nations and the nation states left out. To some degree, um, uh, the nation is always the elephant in the room if we talk about uh, Europe. And um, uh, on the other hand, I would uh, very strongly endorse the thesis that historically, the nation state and European integration are not opposites. The development of the European community and the European Union does not imply the abolition of the nation-state. On the contrary, European integration is a manifestation of the self-assertion and regeneration of the nation-state. Even the so-called quantum leap of the Schumann plan did not result from idealism, um, nor from identical national interests. The Schumann plan was far more the result of American pressure and complementary Franco-German or West German interests. So if we have a look at the early history of European integration, we can absolutely endorse Alan Milward's well-known formula of the European rescue of the nation state. In other words, whenever European states and nations felt that their very own interests were best served by the mode of European cooperation, there was substantial progress in European integration. This was the case in the 1950s when the EEC was at stake and in the 1980s when the single market and the single currency were under discussion. And this was also the case after 2000. The EU enlargement of 2004 and 2007 created a new common political and communicative space it helped to ease national and international tensions in the post-communist world. Having said this, we must consider, of course, the other side of the coin by broadening the perspective, for there is no writing of any history of Europe that does not take into account the European forces of self-destruction that shaped the 20th century. And this brings me to my second key element, which is the question of a patron coming from without. 
Historically, we can ask whether Europeans did not need, from the beginning of the 20th century, a power from outside that was politically and materially superior, a benevolent patron, so to speak, who would have kept in check the European petty and contradictory national interests. Already after 1918, it was only the Americans who, would, who could have played such a role but the US refused the role, even though it actually fitted strongly into its position as the main victor of World War I. Washington did not ratify the Paris treaties and pulled back, at least politically, over the Atlantic. Thus, the European victorious powers, Great Britain and France, were left alone with their purulent task to pacify the continent. But London and Paris pursued very different interests and peace conceptions that finally turned out to be incompatible. The Entente Cordiale that had won the war was replaced by uh, a Mésentente Cordiale that lost the peace. Under these conditions, European Democrats were not able to establish a strong unity of action against Mussolini or Franco, let alone against Hitler. And even after 1945, the Franco-British antagonism continued under different circumstances. After the Second World War, peace in Europe was only to be had under the conditions of the Cold War and its superpowers. In Eastern Europe, it was, of course, the Soviet Union that dictated the development, if necessary, with tanks. Western Europe, on the other side, stood, stood under the prerogative or even the informal hegemony of the United States. With the US pointing the way, the West European countries could recover from the, from the devastations of World War II. Stable, fairly stable democracies were established. Political freedom, economic growth, and the welfare state became intertwined in an unprecedented way. So the Cold War corroborates the experience of the 20th century, namely that modern Europe needs a sort of superior patron that protects the continent from its own self-destructive forces. The crucial, the, the crucial question, therefore, is what about Europe's peace and security after the end of the Cold War? Are the Europeans today capable to get along with themselves without a patron? Are they capable to control their tendencies of self-destruction? Or does today's Europe commence to resemble the Europe of 1914 in a possibly fatal way? And that brings me to my last um, key element, that is the theory of path dependency. After 1945, Western Europeans choose a path to protect them from, so to speak, the ghosts of the past. And I will stress the point that this was a Western project. I mean, the whole history of European integration was a Western project uh, championed and patronized by the United States at the beginning, at least. And uh, when 1980-19 uh, came, uh, the road to Maastricht was already paved, and the Treaty of Maastricht was signed and came into being in 1993, exactly when this old Western narrative was obsolete. And uh, that is one of the great ironies of European history, that in exactly that moment when the European, the European Union uh, was, came into being, it was, to some extent at least, um, obsolete. So nevertheless, 
After 1989, the community thus, thus formed made it possible to give the new post-communist Europe a structure that went beyond national egotisms. So we have to ask, has the European Union itself not grown indeed into the role of that patron the Europeans lacked before 1914 and after 1918? Has this not been the, the crucial transformation of the Europeans to impose, uh, or uh, to in, in the transition to, it, to a sort of collective self-control? In the more or less successful attempt of the Europeans to impose a binding set of rules which protects them against themselves. And this should not be underestimated. The EU, with its, its strict principles of democracy, human rights, and protection of minorities, has achieved strong in integrative, disciplining, and peacekeeping results. So, for a quarter of a century, the European has achieved to what traditional powers were not capable that is to overcome the separating forces and to pacify the continent. At present, of course, and that was uh, something we were talking about uh, yesterday and today, the situation is much more complicated and ambivalent. And we have a clear trend towards the renationalization of politics. But on the other hand, there is a mechanism in place which I would like to call the path dependency of European integration. And I have, I've, I've got the yellow card, so I. Uh, must be very brief. Um, this narrative, if you like, or this element of path dependency contains a decisive element, which is the European states and peoples know or recognize time and again that it would be much more expensive and costly to leave the path than to move on it, albeit laboriously. And in this respect, um, in, to some degree, this uh, continuous muddling through that by no means corresponds to, to the great goals of the European idealism that is invoked in Sunday speeches, of course. And th there is indeed a narrative uh, of trade-offs. Um, Andrew Harrell has uh, spoken uh, this morning. So um, the question now is, we are facing crucial choices. Europe's crisis is undeniable, but it could prove that at the end of the day, the Euro European path, as laborious as, as it is, is the least costly for European states and people. Um, that would, um, that, um, okay, that, I mean, even in Britain, it cannot be ruled out that a new democratic majority will come to the conclusion in the months to come. And in my opinion, this is uh, really, a, a, if you like, a historic test on the question of how strong this path dependency has been um, established uh, in Europe in the case of Britain since 1973. So um, uh, Britons might discover that it is much less burdensome to accept membership in the EU, as laborious, uh, laborious as, it, as it is, than to escape to the open sea. Thanks very much. I've written two um, big books on Europe in the 20th century. The first one um, is called Hell and Back, going from 1914 to 1949. And the second one called Roller Coaster, going from 1950 to when I finished it at the end of 2017. When I was in Germany recently, someone asked me why I'd undertaken this laborious task of writing these two big volumes. And, uh, 
I think the expectation was that I give some philosophical uh, reason for doing this thing, or at any rate, it would be a personal narrative for why I've chosen to write these books. So I think there was some disappointment when I just said I wrote them because the publisher asked me to. Um, and um, what was meant to be one volume then turned into two. So um, it was indeed a, a, a long process of trying to explain uh, the history of Europe in the 20th century, in the first instance to myself. And um, the title of the second volume um, is interesting because it, with the term roller coaster, with a metaphor of roller coaster, what I wanted to do was to turn away from the um, West European perspective, which is effectively of post-war European history as a success story, and by looking um, intensely and intensively at um, Eastern Europe, at Southeastern Europe, Balkans, and at Southern Europe, Mediterranean area, um, and not just at the EU, I wanted to um, show that Europe was in fact a, a Europe with a lot of movement in it, of crises, of ups and downs, of here and there's, and, and movement above all. So that was the way I decided to use this somewhat imperfect uh, metaphor of roller coaster. Incidentally, the suggestion came from a German friend of mine who, when we were talking about possible titles for this second volume, said, well, what's about Achterbahn? What's that in English? And I said, roller coaster. And she said, well, that's it, isn't it? That is what Europe was like after 1950, not a straight line. As I think some, sometimes has seen, at least until the last decades, in the case in West Germany but rather um, ups and downs and a lot of movement. And the Americans, however, have wanted a different title, and they've called it The Global Age. And it's a weaker title in many ways, but it, but it also encapsulates, nonetheless, uh, one of the main themes of this second volume, because whereas the first volume was about war, self-evidently, the second volume, Europe in the seven decades since 1950, has a lot of themes running through it. And uh, it's quite one of the difficulties of coming to a title is actually the fact that it is so varied in its development. And um, the global age at least suggests that in this period, globalization was a significant factor, which in fact does run through the book, um, increasing globalization. But secondly, that Europe in this period becomes dependent upon global forces in a way that it hadn't been before. So in this way, although a less trendy or catchy title, the global age also is um, quite uh, a valid one, I think. Writing the history of my own era in the second volume, I was born in 1943, so <clears throat> I'm writing the history of my own lifetime, so to say, poses its own novelties and its own challenges. And um, certainly trying to make the history of the EEC and EU interesting is one of the greatest challenges that the history of the But in writing this, in writing a book of this sort, uh, the historian has to impose structures on the book. And these structures are largely not shaped, shaped by narratives, but shaped by developments, which are often impersonal developments, such as economic developments, social changes, demographic changes. Um, also, of course, political and cultural changes in which narrative obviously does play a role. And personality, when you think of the role 
played by this country by Margaret Thatcher, for instance, but much more importantly in this book, one personality strikes, strikes me as more significant than any other single individual, that is Gorbachev. And here you have the, the, the difficulty for historians of fitting in the role of personality into all sorts of structural indeterminate, uh, structural determinants which actually shape the history of Europe. When we come to the question of narrative, therefore, it poses the question to me as to whether narrative is, is causal or whether it is a reaction to development. So many of these changes are not caused, in my view, by narratives. They're caused by things beyond narratives, but then narratives reshape themselves to accord with the changes that are taking place. One example would be, obviously, the Brexit narrative here. Take back control. Uh, Brexit, uh, the take back control, fits into all sorts of narratives of British or actually English exceptionalism, which have uh, a lengthier history, but didn't play any significant role until the uh, crisis decade of 2008 to 2018 or so, 17, where you have then the double crisis of the finance and economic crisis followed by austerity politics. And then on top of that, you have the migration crisis, which I don't remember hearing mentioned so far, but has such a fundamental significance for present European narratives. The migration crisis coming on top of the others, which then shaped the way in which the Brexit uh, debate could follow in this country, would take back control, or once harking back to notions of British exceptionalism, including the role of the Second World War, and the British view about the Second World War, so different from, I say, the German view, self-evidently, but also practically every other continental European country. And so to this extent, the, the narrative was able to slot into things which themselves hadn't been determined by narrative, but by things external to narrative. Um, so um, in the, the book, what I deal with uh, uh, is really, and uh, I'm, I'm coming to the end now, so I'll be with my time, but, um, to a transition from two, from in between two periods of insecurity. And I start with the, with the existential insecurity of the Cold War, the early Cold War period. I'm old enough to remember that insecurity of the 1950s and early 60s when we didn't think that the nuclear war could break out any moment, particularly the Cuba crisis. Uh, but then move to a new era of insecurity, which we're living through now, I think. And this. Um, this is a, a, an era of insecurity composed of economic deregulation, globalization, with all its pluses and minuses, communications revolution, which was obviously a vital part of this new uh, form of insecurity, and instead of unipolar international relations, which we thought would take place after 1990, we get multipolar international relations with all their great complexities and their increased dangers. Um, I see this as the, the result of a threefold process, just to mention that the process is an economic, uh, major economic transformation in the period between the 1970s and early 1980s, um, a political transformation centered upon the events of 1989-91, and then the communications revolution of the 1990s and 2000s. And these three transitions, I think, have brought about the levels of insecurity that we see in so many walks of life today. And the pivotal position in this, I think, is that of the 1970s and early 1980s. We're now faced, of course, with where this crisis leads us. Um, in the crisis that we've been facing in Europe since 2008, since the beginning of the finance crisis, 
And this poses a major issue, of course, as we all know, for the future of the EU. My own um, worries are very committed um, pro-European in this, is that I think the EU needs significant change to continue in the long term. But I can't see how that significant change can be arrived at. That's the question for the future. <laughs>